Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 31 Blue Note I decided to keep the tattoo, said Chris. It's a good reminder of lessons learned. We were on a break at the House of Shields, sitting at a table in the balcony away from a large group of friends who had come to see us play. Chris was dressed in a strapless red sequin gown with what looked like a real diamond and ruby pendant centered over his fake décolletage. The pendant was probably as fake as his boobs. Sitting across from him with a fake beer was Stockwell. He'd never seen Chris in drag and was clearly uncomfortable as hell about it, but he couldn't bring himself to diss a guy who had helped bring his daughter's tormentor to justice, especially when it involved wearing women's clothes. He picked at the label of his non-alcoholic beer. Yeah, he said. Carolyn's resigned to keeping hers, too. She's going to try to have the tongue removed so it doesn't appear as if the dragon is eating the butterfly. But laser tattoo removal just isn't good enough to take off something as large as a dragon. I rattled the ice cubes in my bourbon and soda. She's doing okay then, I asked. Stockwell pursed his lips. Physically, she's in great shape. The doctor said there's no brain damage from the coma. Mentally, she's still a little shaky. She really was in love with that cricket bastard, thought he was a misunderstood genius, and it's very hard for her to accept the betrayal. He cleared his throat. That new shrink that you recommended seems to be helping the, uh, a French lady. Glad to hear it. I suppressed a grin. It was painfully clear how hard it was for Stockwell to accept help from the likes of frogs and fags. Did you ever find out the story behind the coma? Did Cricket inject her with GHB at the hospital? Stockwell peeled off a big piece of the beer label and wadded it up into a little ball. No, I learned GHB isn't usually injected. It's taken orally. So he slipped it into something she drank like he did with me, said Chris. Not exactly. He visited her the same night Reardon did and brought the drug along. He told her he didn't want her talking to the police. Then he told her, He told her that it would be better for both of them if she swallowed the GHB, and she did. I see. Chris shifted his gaze to his cosmopolitan glass and took a hurried sip. Which makes it the second time he got his dosages wrong, I said. The first time was with the Japanese girl, and the third time was with me. That's right, said Stockwell. But he went for the Japanese girl only after Carolyn split with him during their trip to Mexico. He drugged Carolyn while they were down there and she woke up with a tattoo. Cricket was deluded enough to think she was going to appreciate what he had done, but of course she was devastated and ran away. He came back to San Francisco and hooked up with the Japanese girl. And after he killed her with an overdose, 
Monica Mappa. I took a sip of bourbon. Monica must not have been in contact with Carolyn at that point. Stockwell nodded. Carolyn was still wandering between here and Mexico. She said that Monica had always been a little jealous of her relationship with Cricket, so she wasn't surprised that Monica found Cricket's attention flattering. But she was still loyal enough to Wesson to get the tattoo removed after he told her he didn't like it. Yeah, I guess. From what you told me about her, I'd say it was less loyalty and more a matter of knowing which side your bread was buttered on. Chris edged his chair forward to the table. What about Wesson? What really happened to him? I finally got Kittred to come clean with me about that, I said. Fucking bastard, put in Stockwell. Nice language, I said, and him a brother officer. Not that you'll get any disagreement from this side of the table. Anyway, after what went down at the train station, they did a full series of blood tests on Wesson. I guess they don't normally screen for ketamine, but they found it in spades. It appears that Cricket broke into his apartment, drugged him, did the I'm sorry tattoo, and planted the equipment. The next stop was a church tower for involuntary diving lessons. Oh, and here's the kicker. Wesson is left-handed, so he could never put the tattoo on his own left arm. Stockwell picked some more at the beer label. I'll wager they found Special K in the art school president, too. You'd win that one, I said. They also found the place on her arm where he injected it. The secretary told them he attacked her when Jang wasn't in the office, then apparently lay in wait for Jang's return. Chris shuddered. At least the president was drugged during the rape. Hopefully she didn't feel anything. I looked over at Stockwell, who met my gaze. I wouldn't spend too much time thinking about it if I were you, said Stockwell. Chris brought his hand up to his throat in a girlish gesture. Don't worry. I'm having enough trouble not thinking about what happened to me. I'd like to scoop out the part of my brain where that memory is stored with a spoon. Stockwell grunted. I am a little surprised he didn't kill you. Chris blanched under his makeup. Way to sugarcoat it, Lieutenant. I'm just saying it doesn't fit the pattern. I downed the rest of my bourbon and crunched on an ice cube. I have a theory about that. I don't think he intended to kill anybody at the start. But once the Japanese girl died, the rules for him changed. He crossed the line and all the subsequent killings came easier. He went after Monica because she'd betrayed him, and Carolyn because of her risk to him. He murdered Wesson to cover his tracks, and indirectly, to revenge himself on the school. But killing Wesson brought home the point that Jang and the school were actually the root of all his problems so he killed Jang in the most vicious and sensational way he could think of, no longer concerned about concealing his identity. Stockwell shook his head. That's a swell theory, but it doesn't explain why he let Duckworth here off the hook. If anything, it argues for him to continue the frenzy by finishing him off in an even more spectacular fashion. I don't think so. It was clear he was leaving town, his business was finished, and the police would definitely be after him for Jang's murder. I think he wanted to leave one more masterwork behind as a sort of calling card, a human canvas for the press to pick up on once the story broke. He obviously wanted that to be another pretty girl, but I think he was toying with the idea of going ahead and tattooing Chris anyway. He didn't have many options at that point. Chris resettled the diamond and ruby pendant on his chest. Well, he certainly didn't say anything about it to me. I met him in the coffee shop, drank half a cup of coffee, 
And the next thing I knew, I woke up in the van with my dress peeled off and him standing over me with a tattoo machine. He yelled and called me all sorts of names, but he never gave any indication of what he was going to do. What was the story with the two vans? I asked. Why were you in one and he in another? He owned them both. One was a sort of mobile tattoo parlor with all his equipment and a gas generator. That's the one you found me in. I guess the other was just for getting around. And the picture Reardon used to find you, said Stockwell. How did you send that? Cricket went to the front of the van to do something with the equipment. My purse was nearby and I managed to fish out my phone, even though my hands were tied. I couldn't use it to call anyone without him hearing, so I took a picture and sent it to Gretchen. I would have done more, but he caught me right after. Stockwell inclined his head slightly. Clever boy. Or girl. Or whatever it is you are. Chris smiled. Why, thank you, Lieutenant. I'm happy to be whatever you want me to be. Stockwell reddened, but was saved from further repartee by the arrival of a waiter. Phone for you, Cassandra, he said. Chris stood and ran his hands over his hips to smooth his dress. Excuse me, boys. My public calls. I'll see you downstairs in a few. Stockwell watched him sashay down the staircase, then turned back to me. Jesus, he said. That's just a little too real. I better get out of here before I start liking it. You don't want to stay for the second set? Sorry. Jazz just sounds like so many sick cats to me. He stood and put his hand out. I took it. This is hard for me to say, but thank you for everything. I don't think Carolyn would ever be able to get past this if Cricket had got away. He lowered his voice. Or even if he'd lived to go to trial. I nodded and shook his hand. I wasn't going to tell him that attraction to Ellen had more to do with my involvement. Or the belief that Cricket had murdered Chris was the real reason I'd fired those last three rounds. The truth of the matter was, I'd been fairly certain that Cricket was out of bullets. I knew for sure when I checked the still-warm colt by its outstretched fingers. Stockwell left and I sat down again at the table, firing up an illicit cigarette and watching the smoke drift up to the rafters. I thought of resolute girls who hadn't let leg braces or loss of insurance settlements stop them from doing what they knew was right. I thought of pretty girls in she-devil outfits who knew the value of a dollar but wouldn't be around now to make a quick buck on eBay or frazzle the nerves of men twice their age. I thought of slim, graceful women with gap-tooth smiles who did much more than frazzle nerves but couldn't or wouldn't change their lives in the way I wanted. A yell from downstairs broke my reverie. Reardon, get your butt down here. I stubbed out my cigarette and shuffled down the stairs to rising applause from the audience. The tables in front of the bandstand were full, and I caught sight of Victor Lane and his wife grinning at me as I made my way to the front. Hey, August, he shouted. Why is a bass solo like a sneeze? I knew the answer, but I played along. I don't know, Victor. Why is it? Because you know it's coming, but there's not a damn thing you can do about it. I smiled and waved him off with mock indignation. As I stepped onto the riser, Chris approached me from where he'd been loitering near the microphone. Turns out my call was really for you, he said into my ear. Special delivery from a party who wishes she could be here. He pressed a small envelope into my palm. 
Inside was a note from Ellen Stockwell. It read simply, August, in a future life, all my love, Ellen. Chris watched as I read the note. Something in my face made him squeeze my arm. I walked back to the big Legomini base that Victor had given me and took it off the stand. I slipped the note from Ellen under the strings of the pegboard and carried the base forward to the middle of the stage. Victor's grandson, Reggie, smiled at me as he limbered up the valves on his trumpet. Tristan Sinclair tipped his pork pie hat. Chris took a bow by the microphone, and the applause reached a crescendo. He looked back at us with a power-drunk expression that seemed dangerously familiar. He turned to Sinclair. It's time, he yelled. Play meat! You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>